All right, now we're jumping in to a very important sermon. And this is going to be unlike anything I've ever taught. This is going to feel more like a seminary class than it will a sermon. Um, but God is going to speak to us. And I feel like it's a very strategic, timely, pointed message based solely in the word of God. And so let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit that illuminates and gives us understanding of your word. Thank you for the fact that your spirit leads us into all truth, even as you told the disciples. There are things you want to tell us, and there's times in our life we're not ready to receive the truth. But you said the Holy Spirit would come and lead us in truth. And all of us can relate. We've been at seasons and places in our life. Seems like our whole world is in one of those places together right now. Where a lot of people don't want to hear the truth. Even believers. And we need you, Holy Spirit, to breathe. Send the Ruach. Illuminate your word. Lead us into the understanding of truth. And we know truth is a person. His name is Jesus. And he said that. When we know truth, not just heads up, but when we live it and we embrace the knowledge of truth, not just the awareness of facts, but when we embrace truth, we, we know freedom. And then you said, the ones that you, the person of truth, sets free will be free indeed, free for real. And we just sang, Lord, and we thank you. This, this is the life. We're living the life, the abundant life. And we pray, Lord, that your word would go out. And everyone that listens here live, those on Facebook, and, and those who will listen to it later in our archives, we just pray, Lord, that you would speak. I would be silent. It's not my opinion. It's not what I think or feel or how I've been conditioned. I'm trying my best to purify myself as one who delivers your word and your truth at this strategic hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to lay the groundwork this morning. Next week will really be the payoff, but there's going to be, I, I cannot tell you what I sense in my spirit this week and next. Um, and for those of you who can't, if you can't be here next week, hopefully you'll tune in. And um, those who come next week, hopefully they'll go back and, and get the foundation that we're laying this morning. We're talking about an honest conversation about biblical sexuality. I'm going to move as quickly as I can, so... Buckle up and hold on. We're going to take a deep dive into biblical sexuality. And you may say, why do, Pastor Chuck, there's a lot of other things. Why do something so controversial? Well, the Bible, Paul told Timothy that there will, be a com, there will come a time when people will not be able to endure sound doctrine. But he didn't say stop teaching sound doctrine. We have to teach it even though there are people who don't have ears to hear. We have a generation at stake that needs to hear what God's word says. And you may go, but, but why bother with all the cultural stuff, PC? You know, wh 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 why do all of that? Well, there's a couple reasons. You know, First, First Chronicles 12 says that the sons of Issachar, listen, they understood the time or the seasons of what was happening. And they knew what Israel should do. Yeah, but Jeremiah 29 says this, that the, the children of Israel, when they were in Babylonian captivity, 
God didn't tell him, just, just hold your breath. I'm going to get you out with some escapist mentality. Um, in, Jer- in Jeremiah chapter 29 says, but seek the welfare of the city. And that's not like food stamps and government handout. That's seek to live in such a way that those people that live around you can fare well. And that was the original idea behind welfare in our nation too. But pray to the Lord on its behalf. And then here's, here's the critical part. Listen, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And so I, I stand against those spiritual leaders who would say, as a church leader, stay out of all that stuff. Like, we put a flag out last week. We're not ashamed of America, but America is not our king. America is not our kingdom. We don't, we don't put our citizenship in this earth ahead of the kingdom of God. And, and it's not even a close second, but we're not ashamed of it. And we lift up Jesus, yet we talk about current relevant issues as the scriptures. Because as we seek for the welfare of our nation, it's our own children and grandchildren's welfare that is at at, at stake. So you may say, okay, with this subject, who are you addressing? And I want you to know I plan to address everyone. I will say some things that's probably going to stretch and rub everybody in here the wrong way. Um, because we're going to address sexual, biblical sexuality. And we all need a refresher on what God's Word says about sexuality. All of us. So I'm not going to skip over anything. This will be a bit technical as I want to give the subject thorough treatment historically, culturally, and biblically. Listen, sex is a big deal. Everything in our world is about sex, except sex. Sex is about control and power. Now, the series that we're in this summer is called Uncensored. And our text comes from Genesis 3, but we're not going to go there. But I just, I got to put this out there for everybody, especially those that are here for the first time. God told Adam and Eve what to do. Satan came in the very next chapter, first verse, and says, did God really say? And Eve said, yes, he did say. And then she, then Satan said back to her, but that's not really what he meant. And that is a snapshot of what's happening. And, and it's what has always happened. It's how Satan created sin. He created the first one. Did God really say, okay, that's not what he meant. And we're still, we're in the midst of that today. And in many regards, that's our battle. So let's jump in. It was a $70 million lawsuit filed from a gay man who... Um, was suing Zondervan and Thomas Nelson publishers for the Bible that they had published and the word, the way they used the word homosexuality. The, and that it had caused him, growing up in that kind of teaching, exposed to that doctrine, had created for him 20 plus years of being tormented. And, um, he alleged that their version of the Bible that refers to homosexuality as a sin violated his constitutional rights, and it caused him emotional distress. Now, the, the lawsuit was thrown out, but the point, and that's what we want to get after on a lot of this stuff is, the point is, when you talk about the Bible and you talk about sexuality, it may be the most controversial thing you can talk about today. 
There's lots of pain and lots of hurt and lots of fear also. So I want to be very sensitive to the pain and confusion. And this may sound weird to you, but you know, you imagine you yourself as a child growing up in a home where you are taught biblical truth, but you are, for whatever reason, and we're going to talk about that next week, you are attracted to the same sex. And in your mind, you, you never made a choice, but you struggle with it. Same-sex attraction. And I, I want us to be sensitive and, and clear. I want to be very sensitive to that pain. Now, I am a straight, white man, happily married for a long time with lots of kids. And what I'm sharing today, this is not my opinion. It is my interpretation of Scripture. And I would have everybody know, I consider myself as a thoughtful pastor who is sensitive and tuned in to the culture, sensitive to all people. And I do hold my opinion with conviction, but I also hold it with compassion, as I do on all of the human struggles that, as a pastor, I see. I try to be convicted on what I believe God says, and yet compassionate and loving and sensitive to people who struggle. So today, we hold up the plumb line of God's word. Amos chapter 7, the prophet said, I've given you my word as a plumb line. You may not know what a plumb line is, but the last few weeks I've gone out and seen the masons, the masonry guys stacking brick. And they still take an old school, Old Testament string and they pull it all the way across the, 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 the next row of bricks and they level that with a scope, and now they use all the, the sophisticated tools. But it's, it's a string. That's a plumb line. So every brick that they go in, they can measure and see, is that brick plumb? Is it level? If not, they could finish, and we could have the leaning tower of pizza out in our courtyard. And so we bring, not our opinion, but we bring the plumb line of God's Word to the best of our understanding. Now, let's talk about the language that I want to use this morning. Even the words that we choose can be very explosive, and we don't often in the Christian world use good wisdom and sensitivity because we're often preaching in echo chambers where everybody already agrees with us, and we're saying things to rile people up and create excitement, and, and, and we manipulate crowds. And so I want us to be a sense, this is a good education for you. We're not going to use the words affirming and non-affirming because I think those are exclusive and divisive. We're not affirming and we're not non-affirming. When we say non-affirming, there are some gay people that I know that there are things that in their life and the kind of people that they are, they can be affirmed and those things can be affirmed. We're not going to use the term classical or revisionist because that too I don't think that's accurate, and that sets, sets us up for a quick end to the discussion where we're eternally divided. And so we use this morning, and I do in this subject, the term historic and progressive. And we use this, I like this, because that is the term gay Christians 
have actually chosen as they identify themselves as progressive Christians. Now, in night, so I come obviously from a historic standpoint. And I would have you know that for 1,960 years since the time Jesus was born, all major denominations of Christianity, Catholic, Orthodox, Anglican, and almost every one of the 50, over 50,000 Protestant denominations, all of them have viewed the practice of homosexuality the exact same way. They've viewed it as a sin until the 1960s. And so I want to ask you as we jump in, what do, I want you to ask yourself, what do I believe about these things and why do I believe them? Three questions. What is my definition of godly marriage and sexuality? Now everybody look here a second. In today's world, even in North Atlanta, if I were to go out and just ask the average person, person, what is your definition of marriage, of a godly marriage, or marriage? You know, people get all kinds of crooked, funny, weird looks on their faces. And, and then, how would you define what you believe godly or biblical sexual living to be? And, and let's be honest. I know that the way you and I view marriage, where one man is married to one woman in a relationship where they will only sleep with each other for the rest of their lives, is now viewed as insanity in our culture. So that's a given, but that is how we view marriage. Now, so what is my definition Godly marriage and sexuality. Number two, how did I get this definition? That's a good question. And then number three, how do the scriptures support this definition? And the last question is what we're getting after this week and next. Now, there are three parts of this two-week sermon, and we're going to get 1.2 parts of the three done this morning. And the three parts are this. Number one, how did we get here culturally and historically? And that's critical because we are all in here the victims of an ongoing violent cultural war on both sides. And we can learn a lot about what we should do moving forward when we understand how we got here. The second thing is, what does the Bible actually say about same-sex relationships? We will look at five passages of Scripture, the key ones. And we will do one of those this week at the end, and we'll do the next four next week. And then number three, the third question I want you to be able to answer. Next week, we will deal with this. How, as biblical Christians, as biblical Christians, should we treat the gay community? And there's a lot to learn. All right, so part number one, how we get here culturally and historically. It's safe to say that we are, have arrived here by a violent, bloody cultural war. There has been a major shift in the world at a dizzying rate of speed. And when you are in a cultural war, listen to me, you look for actual languages, language and metaphors around war, how you treat the other, 
opposing opinion. Whether you villainize them in your discussion or you humanize them. I wish I had time to drill down on that. I don't. Most people are so divided, and even Christians, we villainize and don't humanize the other side often. And so it's whether you use war metaphors or relational metaphors. This is so critical. And one thing is clear. It has been a war, and it continues to be. So on one side of this war, war are the, the people who view gay relationships primary through the lens of injustice. It's a justice-framed issue for them, and it fits well in America, where we've always welcomed all, been inclusive, and praised justice. This war that we're in began in the 60s with the sexual revolution and the protest against the Vietnam era, the Vietnam War, and it began at the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village in, in New York City where for six days there were riots in response, listen, to a police invasion to this popular gay bar due to the behavior and lifestyle being seen as abnormal and dangerous to society. This attack in the early morning of June 28, 1969 at the Stonewall Inn was considered a homosexual shot heard around the world and it transformed an American culture. This place is now called the birthplace of the pride movement. And the moment was ripe for the gay community to seize upon the, this language of rights, revolution, and protest, and to take itself from the fringe of American moral life and to reposition itself at the center. This was started and gained a lot of traction through the Gay Liberation Front. Now, the Gay Liberation Front and the 1973 Declaration on a War on Normalcy, their primary goal was to secure recognition of the legitimacy of same-sex relationships and rights associated with those relationships. And this went on for years, and there was a ton of pushback initially in the 70s. And then along came the AIDS epidemic, and you think there's confusion around COVID. It, AIDS, the AIDS epidemic, listen, began to wreak havoc, causing tremendous heartbreak and confusion for the gay community. And a lot of their effort was turned, that was used to push toward cultural change, it shifted their perspective and attention towards caring for others, for one another in their own community because people were dying of AIDS at a heartbreaking and staggering rate. The people did not know what to do. So as they were wrestling with how to respond to the AIDS crisis, listen to me, they realized that if they were going to see the kind of breakthroughs connected to medicine and funding for AIDS research, they would have to again seek to promote and control the way Americans viewed gay relationships. So in February 1998, not that long ago, the war conference took place. 175 of the leading gay activists convened in Northern Virginia, just outside of DC, to establish a four-point agenda for the gay rights movement in America. After that meeting, Harvard-trained and social activist Marshall Kirk and Hunter Madsen 
wrote a homosexual manifesto that promised to dismiss the movement's old, outworn techniques in favor of carefully calculated public relations propaganda laying groundwork for the next stage of the gay revolution and its ultimate victory over bigotry. All of this info is found in a book entitled After the Ball. It's interesting that this book, I don't want to get into it too much, but instead of it being reprinted, which would really shed a lot of light on how we got here, look how much it costs right now. We've got copies available in the lobby if anybody's interested. <laughs> but this is a groundbreaking book. And look, look at the small print, a compelling and compassionate work that never fails to stimulate. After the ball is required reading for straights interested in understanding a minority that comprises 10% of the population and for gays who are learning that the revolution is far from over. Now, they had in this book a three-pronged strategy to take on what they perceived as bigotry and gay relationships in America. And it was this, desensitize, jam, and convert. Desensitize Americans to gay relationships. Jam up all opposition and convert popular opinion. Now I'm reading from the book as it relates to desensitize. A continuous flood of gay-related advertising presented in the least offensive fashion possible. If straights can't shut off the shower, they may at least eventually get used to being wet. The main thing is to talk about gayness until the issue becomes thoroughly tiresome. Seek desensitization and nothing more. If you can get straights to think homosexuality is just another thing meriting no more than a shrug of the shoulders, then your battle for legal and social rights is virtually won. So, the first wave was one of desensitizing American public con uh, Americans' public to the concept of gay relationships, about jamming and blocking any dissent. This was an attempt at using economic, advertising, and political means to push back on and attack people who were attacking the gay community. And this was and has been and continues to increasingly more be very effective. Tim Gill from Rolling Stone article, a man whose net worth was $500 million, basically set his personal fortune to take on anybody who would challenge the legitimacy and the rights of the gay community, particularly focused on legislation and popular opinion. The problem comes when we see this. As Tim Gill said, listen, we're going into the hardest states in the country and we're going to punish the wicked. So his thought is that anybody who doesn't affirm, affirm same-sex relationships is wicked. And this is another story, but he spent 422 of his own million of his own dollars, his own personal fortune, to see what we are all seeing today, a punishing of those that they call the wicked who do not affirm same-sex relations. Now, the last of the, the book, After the Ball, Convert American Opinion. There's another author named David Carter who wrote Stonewall from the, the popular gay bar in Greenwich Village. 
And in it, he talks about moving from psychology, disorder, law, legal, church. And, and listen, after the riots, he says, we basically organized around three points. Number one, to remove homosexuality as a disorder from the American Psychological Association. Goal number one, this is not a mental illness or a condition. We'll talk a lot more about that next week and how that has been done and how we continue to be manipulated where people who have come out of this lifestyle, their books are no longer offered. They're not sold on Amazon. There's a lot around that. Number two, he said that we would have a legislative approach that we would strike down sodomy laws and establish legal protections for gay relationships. And number three is an attack on the church to get homosexuality removed as being seen as a sin. Carter said that the first two were going remarkably well, but the real challenge is with the church. The level of lobbying, education, media, law, arts, entertainment, money spent, and behind-the-scenes interest to the conversion of the American opinion towards supporting same-sex relationships has been nothing short of extraordinary. Here's some quotes from the book again. Conversion of the average American's emotions, mind, and will will happen through a planned psychological attack in the form of propaganda fed to the nation via the media. The public should be persuaded that gays are the victims of circumstance, that they no more chose their sexual orientation than their height. For all practical purposes, gays should be considered to have been born gay even though sexual orientation for most humans seems to be the product of a complex interaction between innate predispositions and environmental factors during childhood and early adolescence. To suggest in public that homosexuality might be chosen is to open the can of worms labeled moral choice and sin. And that would give the religious right a stick to beat us with. One more. First, when you get your foot in the door by being as similar as possible, then, and only then, when your one little difference, orientation, is finally accepted, then can you start dragging in your other peculiarities one by one. You hammer in the wedge, narrow in first. As the saying goes, allow the camel's nose beneath your tent and his whole body will soon follow. Now, many people have studied this and concluded that it is the most successful cultural shift that has ever occurred in human history. And I would agree, in my limited understanding and my humble opinion, on sociological stuff throughout the course of human history, I think it has been a breathtaking, amazing shift in such a short time. For many people, though, it was the most important cause of their life. It was about injustice. Now, their leading opinions, listen to me, people... From people, they're leading opinions from people within the gay community who are now growing concerned. They are concerned because they do not believe that punishing the wicked 
is the way to win the cultural wars. They say it seems like we are rearming for round two, three, four, five, six, and seven. Andrew Sullivan, a very bright gay man, wrote this article. The gay rights movement is undoing its best work. He makes the case that trying to punish the wicked will backfire. This is a very interesting article. The fear is that the radicalization of the movement has caused a backlash where the number of heterosexual Americans who support the equal treatment and rights of the LGBTQ community is decreasing for the first time in decades. He says that the gay community has worked so hard, listen, to enjoy their current rights that they should enjoy them. But he says we're trying to force it and then some upon the American culture. Hence, the sharing of bathrooms, males competing in female sports, and the list goes on and on. And there are bright people within the community who have said, this is going to backfire on us. The second part of this is, if this part was about injustice that we've just talked about, there's another side of culture that views it primary, primarily through the lens of morality and sees it as immoral. Moral, the moral majority came along in the late 70s, really early 80s, along with Reagan to the White House. And um, the moral majority is about morality. And they campaign, you, many of you may remember, for issues like the promotion of a traditional vision of family life, opposition to media outlets that it claimed promote an anti-family agenda, opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment and strategic arms limitation talks, opposition to state recognition or acceptance of homosexual acts, prohibition of abortion, even in cases involving incest, rape, or in pregnancies where the life of the mother is at stake, Support for Christian prayers in school. Marketing to Jews and other non-Christians for conversions to conservative Christianity. So, in response to the cry for, or for justice, standing against injustice, comes the moral majority. And so this was a strategy. And it was the response, a rallying cry, a force. It was the other side of this cultural war. And statements of the founder of the moral majority were then and even now more tone deaf than they were then. As he said, AIDS is not just God's punishment for homosexuals. It is God's punishment for the society that tolerates homosexuals. He went on to say, if you're not, born, if you're not a born-again Christian, you're a failure as a human being. And the, major success, the major success for the moral majority was the Defense of Marriage Act, or the DOMA, in 1996, which was basically, at a federal level, it ensured that marriage would only be between a man and a woman. And ironically, of all people to sign it into law was Bill Clinton. I'm tempted, but we're moving right along. 
So now this battle for justice and morality has led to a lot of heartbreak on both sides. As outsiders view the Christian church, brothers and sisters, we have effectively been marginalized and we are now seen as the problem. And what you feel about this sexual, homosexual issue has been deeply formed by our culture on both sides. If you're violently opposed or if you're a gay activist, much of what we feel and do and believe has been informed by this cultural war. And most people are now walking around, all of us in this room, with gut instincts that have been formed by outside influences. Many of us haven't been, we haven't thought carefully about these issues. And we haven't been taught from Scripture very well on the truth and how we should respond when the, the lies seem to be invading our culture. We've avoided the subject and sermons. We've avoided. That's part one, how we got here culturally and historically. And um, being born in 1965, right in the midst of Vietnam, the sexual revolution, the Jesus movement of the 70s, Reagan in the White House, my high school years and college years, and, and what happened in the 90s and what's happened in the last 21 years, especially the last three or four. Having an understanding of history, you've heard me say many times, Mark Twain said, one thing we've learned from history is that we haven't learned anything from history. And that's so sad. And, and I'm not up here trying to stretch you into believing some liberal concept or ideology. You know me. I am sensitive to people, and I love the word. And I will, I will give account for every sermon that I preach as I lead this place spiritually. And I want to do my very best to be true to God's word. Now, but we need to be aware of how we got here. Now, let's move to part two. Part two, the Bible and same-sex relationships. Can we, for just a minute, push off the justice cries and the morality cries for a minute? Is it possible for people who sharply disagree to have thoughtful conversation? It's not likely, but it is possible. Is it possible for us, all of us, to take an honest look at what the Bible actually says? I've always held on to the historic position as it relates to same-sex relationships. Now, we're not looking at my position. We're looking at five different passages of what the Bible actually says. And so, look, the Bible is not in support of a liberal agenda. The Bible was not written in support of a conservative agenda. The Bible is not Republican or Democrat. The Bible is an invitation from God that we could become his friend and live with him in that relationship forever. That's what the Bible is about. Now, 
Let's look in Genesis chapter 2. Very familiar portion, passage of Scripture. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. And all the men said, Hallelujah, Amen to that. Amen? I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, listen, no, these two words, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now, and this, is, this moves poetically right here. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, whoa, man. <laughs> For she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. This is a beautiful account of the creation of the world. Please suspend your questions about science for just a minute and appreciate the story of God's marvelous creation. It's a creation of order, beauty. There's a vision of human flourishing and rich human purpose. And it's also an introduction into gender and sexuality amongst human beings. The key phrase for us is suitable helper. It says there was no suitable helper found for Adam. So God created one. Now the, the progressive opinion says this. Listen closely. What Adam needed was not a woman but a human. The emphasis is not necessarily on gender, but kind. It was here that Adam needed humanity, a human, not an animal. And it was Eve's humanity, not her gender, that made her a suitable companion. For gay people, people of the opposite gender are not appropriate for marriage to them because they're not attracted to them sexually or relationally. And so they say you can substitute a suitable helper as long as they are hum human. That's the key issue in the first passage, the order of creation. Now there's a lot of truth hidden here in the original language, more than we can cover today. And throughout the years you've heard me talk, I believe that Man's attraction to woman and woman's attraction to man and, and all the intimacy that comes in the beauty of being married according to God's standards. Enjoying that in my own personal life is the greatest evidence for me that God exists. 
And I know not everybody gets to enjoy that. And that is sad. Because God's way is a, he had a vision of human flourishing, of rich purpose, that we would not be able to fulfill it without the other. Now, is Eve's humanness, her not being an animal, but a human like Adam, is that the only thing that qualified her as a suitable helper? I think her being female actually played a role as well. Dr. Preston Sprinkle says this, the Hebrew word used here in this passage for suitable is the word konegdo, and it is only used here in the Old Testament in Genesis, in chapter 2, verse 18 and 20. Konegdo is somewhat difficult to translate into English since it is a compound word made up of ke, which means as or like, and neged, which means opposite, against, or in front of. Together, the word means something like as opposite him or like against him. It's a complex word that captures how it is that Eve can qualify as the perfect partner for Adam. So the first response to this is that God has actually made Eve and one of the things that works in their relationship is not just that she's like Adam, being a human. She's like him, but different too. How many of you would agree and thank God? It's a good kind of different. Can I get a witness? Again, it's the, it's the, it's the, the genius of being a sovereign God and creator. So, Sprinkle goes on. Here's the relevant point. If it were simply Eve's humanness that made her a helper, then the word like would have been just fine. A helper like him. The verse would then read, I will make a helper like him. But to make the point that Adam needed not just another human, but a different sort of human, a female, God specifically used a word that he only used twice in the whole Bible, konegdo. This word potentially conveys both similarity and dissimilarity. Eve is a human and not an animal, which is why she is like Adam. But she's also a female and not a male, which is why she is different than Adam or neged. Now, no longer given that, no longer are we just talking about Adam and Eve in Genesis 2.24 here because the author of Genesis goes on and says, because of everything we just said, for this reason, because God made them male and female, we're talking about God's basic design for marriage. This is why this verse is so often quoted by Jesus and Paul in the New Testament when the subject of marriage came up. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. For this reason, a man will leave and cleave to his wife. Now, so according to this first passage, we'll look at four more next week, there are three necessary 
things for a marriage according to this passage. Number one, both parties need to be human. That'd be a great opportunity for somebody to say hallelujah, praise the Lord. But it's getting crazy out there. Number two, we're in the South. Both partners come from different families. Some of y'all aren't clapping as loud. I can see the email now. Pastor Chuck, is my fourth cousin okay? Or <laughs> Number three, both partners display sexual difference. Connecto. Now let me just remind you again, brothers and sisters, Satan said, did God really say? Eve said, yes. And she recounted the sermon. He said we could have anything in the garden, but that tree, don't even touch it or we will die. And Satan goes, that's not really what he meant. He actually said, oh, God's rejected you at some level. Because even God knows if you eat it, you'll be like him knowing good and evil. There's something better that you haven't been given yet by God. And this is where we live. Did God really, brothers and sisters, an honest, simple approach to Scripture on this passage, it's undeniable. It's undeniable with love and compassion and great sensitivity. Marriage, if we're going by the book, is between a man and a woman. Now, amen. In Sprinkle's book, People to be Loved, he says, it's striking, too, that the sexual difference of man and woman in Genesis 1 and 2 appears to reflect many other differing pairs embedded in creation. Notice that Genesis 1 ripples with a creative display of diversity that complements each other. God and creation, light and darkness, earth and sky, sun and moon, land and sea, humans and animals. And at the pinnacle of God's creation stands the masterpiece of male and female. God created mankind, male and female. He created them. Creation is not uniform, but a beautiful display of differences interacting with each other. The coming together of male and female in marital and sexual union is the height of creation's astonishing union of otherness. And I, I cannot say enough about um, like marriage, I'm, I'm, this is it, I'm almost at the end, and it's 1125, this is amazing, I had seven pages, I think God had time stand still, we're here ahead on, on schedule, but I, I have so many emotions right now that I feel, as we were singing, speak the name of Jesus, there no doubt in this room, there's, there, there are one or two or who knows how many people who struggle. And we, the church has been tone deaf 
We've been, there's three things. Number one, we've been right too often the wrong way. And listen to me. We're living out the tree of knowledge and good and evil. We know that's right and that's wrong. And we're not living out the tree of life. Oh, I have so many things just coming up inside of me, stuff I haven't thought of in 20 years. It's John Eldridge's book that said, you don't know a real man until you watch him when a real woman enters the room. A real woman, a, a, a woman, not a woman of the night, but so a woman who knows who they are. You don't know that man until you watch him when a real woman walks in the room. John Eldridge said that. I, I see the equivalent of, listen, you don't know a real Christian until you see them when a real non-Christian enters the room. And that, that is, that reaction is the fruit or the evidence of, are they really a woman or man of God? And there, there's so many things around this, you know, why, why aren't we enjoying marriage more? There's a, that'd be a whole nother series that would last to Christmas. But for one, we date terribly. We let our children date horribly. We, we're just like the children of Israel. You know, God said, when you go in, don't let your little Hebrew boys and girls date those Canaanite boys and girls. Just don't do it. And that, I mean, that's one. And we view marriage. Our, it's such a cheapened institution and the family is the basic institution of society, not the church. And, and families come from marriages. And so we have marriages that are short-term and marriages that live in the wilderness, never in the promised land, bearing fruit. Listen to me. Why, why talk about sex? I, I think... Sex and its misappropriation. Somebody, that's God calling. Somebody's, God's trying to FaceTime me on my iPad. Anna. FaceTiming Stone in Kenya. Uh, speaking of dating. <laughs> um, listen. Her face is eight shades of pink right now. Um, this is my experience. Every person I've ever dealt with that is broken, you can trace their issues back to sex gone wrong, either with them, from another person to them, or in their origin, the way they were brought into this world. Alcoholics and drug addicts are usually medicating a problem where sex was done wrong. 
I think this issue, and we'll talk about this more next week. Listen to me. Paul said, all other sins a man commits are outside his body. But the sins of sex are against his own body. What is he saying? Sex sins are worse than other sins. Sin is sin. But the, the collateral damage of sex sins is greater. It usually ruins lives more than just the person committing the sin. And there's a lot to unpack there. Now, thank God for Jesus. And thank God for his transforming, healing power. Seriously. And thank God that he redeems and restores after divorce. But let us not be so sensitive to those who have gone through a divorce that we de-emphasize the beauty of marriage the way God intended it. And I trust you know my heart on that. So in closing, these three things. First, when I was um, thinking of Jack Haver, Church on the Way, we spent time out there four years being mentored in their school of pastoral nurture. And one of the most impactful stories that I heard 20 years ago, listen, Jack Hayford said, in their church was a homosexual man living in a relationship with another man. And he somehow came to their church, a spirit-filled church. Father's heart, no one like Pastor Jack Hayford taught the word with a greater connection to the heart of God than Jack Hayford. Over a series of years, that man that nobody knew was living that lifestyle came under conviction and told his partner that he was going to have to leave that relationship. Just after that, his partner came down with AIDS. This is on the West Coast. And that man that was transformed and gave his life to Christ in the church served his former partner for months and up to one or two years, I can't remember. He served him as they were not in relationship. Before that man died of AIDS, he asked his former partner if his pastor at that church that he despised would come and see him. And he said, I'll try. It's a big church. But why do you want to see him? And he said this, because I want what you have. What I've seen you do has caused me to want that. And Pastor Jack went it's a pow- and prayed the prayer of salvation with that former partner as he gave his life to Christ. That's the kingdom. That's the grace, the mercy of Father God. So, now, number one, Christians are often, too often, right the wrong way. And I just want to close my eyes because I don't want to make contact with anybody. Some of y'all on social media, you need to quit focusing on the, the gifts of the Spirit and start focusing on the fruits of the Spirit. Social media is doing more damage to Christianity and, and the church in America than anything else, than the devil could ever do. Number two, 
We live too often in the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We don't know how, when a real sinner walks into our life, we don't even know how to act because we're not living in the tree of life. And then thirdly and closely, we don't love people well in the church and we don't trust Holy Spirit to transform people. Listen to me on that last point. Everybody tracking with me? This church is different, and I'm giving you props. Shout out to Restoration Church. If I was a sinner wanting to remain a sinner the rest of my life, this place would scare me, and I'm not trying to be cute. The love in this place is authentic and real. It's born of God's Spirit. You can feel it in worship. There's something tangible in here. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And may, may we never take it for granted. You don't know who you're saying hello to in the parking lot. You don't know who you're greeting, who's walking up the sidewalk and what they're carrying. This place is different, and I thank God for it. But may we let, may we see that the love of God has the power to transform people. Remember, going back to Genesis, in Genesis 1, the Holy Spirit was hovering in the darkness and chaos. What's darkness and chaos sound like? 2020. How many of you, turn to somebody and tell somebody, I survived 2020 and I'm halfway through 2021. Just tell them. <laughs> halfway. We're going to make it. So Holy Spirit's just hovering in chaos and darkness until the word spoke, let there be light. And what happened? Holy Spirit, boop, went into action. No more chaos, light. And when we in this place allow Holy Spirit to hover and darkness and chaos comes in, could we trust the process when the Word goes out, like what happened at Pastor Jack Hayford's church. People are transformed. Because in case you haven't noticed, homosexuality or the practice of homosexuality is not the only sin that is hurting Christians. There's a couple others out there. So we need the Holy Spirit to hover in this place. Can I get a witness? Come on, somebody. We praise you, Lord. Come on, stand with me. I told you this is going to feel more like a seminary class than a sermon. But I pray that you, this week and next, may the word of God, listen, may God take his finger, as he did on Mount Sinai, and may he inscribe his word on our hearts. It was in the New Testament Jesus said, by deliverance, by God's finger, he brings deliverance. What's the parallel? If we can get God's word written, inscribed on our hearts, there's transformation that comes. Amen? So, Father, we thank you for your word this morning, for hungry hearts. We thank you that your, your word gives us the, 
the picture that you want to see humans flourish in rich purpose. There's order and beauty and creativity in creation. And so, Lord, we pray that you would make us people of the word, people of your spirit, who know the word of the Lord. And when the enemy says, did God really say we won't in the tree of knowledge go, yeah, God said this, but that we will be able to stand and with tears in our eyes and conviction and compassion be able to say, this is what God's word says. I just feel Holy Spirit look at me, brothers and sisters. The most... I haven't thought about this in years. The most far from God person I've ever been around was a fellow football coach. He had names for me that I won't. I've told the story years ago. One time he called me a term of endearment. An effing preacher was a term of endearment. He was from New York. He was just hardcore. Hardcore. Just be glad. Your little sister was not married to this guy. It was bad. But I, I gained his respect, and he said to me one time, we were in the field house doing, putting equipment away, and it was just us two. And he said to me, he goes, hey, Ramsey, you think I'm going to hell? I went home and told Candace this story, and I got to that morning. She goes, what'd you say? <laughs> it was a moment I had, Holy Spirit just, spoke up from my heart, and I said, not if I can help it. Not if I can help it. May God, may our Christianity be proven authentic and real when we come in contact with people who are in chaos and darkness. How many of you just lift your hand and just say, I receive that, Lord. Make us living epistles, Lord. Your spirit speaking, writing your word in this culture. The aroma of Christ spread everywhere we go. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance to you, and may he give you peace. Not as the world gives, but may he give you his peace. You receive it, just say it. I receive it in Jesus' name. God bless you all. We hope to see you Wednesday night. Have a good afternoon. I love you.